Welcome to this week's edition of the So We Speak podcast. This is Terry Fakes, and this week I'll be interviewing a special guest, Cole Fakes. I uh, have been wanting to do this for some time, Cole, because you uh, put out every Monday, and this is your work product. I get a little bit of credit for this, but this is actually your work product. This is something that comes out from So We Speak. It's called the Weekly Speak. And it is a subscription, a free subscription, but if you sign up, you will see in your mailbox via email every Monday morning in what is, in my opinion, the most balanced, the best researched news summary of all the events of the week and the major events going on in the world and in the United States. It's not very long. It's an easy read, and it has links to various points of view. I I really cannot say enough good about this. If you read only one weekly piece of news, it needs to be this. But to intro that, it Uh, The reason I value it so much has to do with bias in the news. Uh, Of course, the accusations are floating out there about fake news, depending on which side of the aisle you happen to be on. You know, the other side's providing slanted or skewed or biased or sometimes even false news. There was a great example of that this week, Cole, where people divided and there were some big accusations against the New York Times of being unfairly biased, and it had to do with a book that was written and an article that came out as a result of that by two New York Times reporters. Could you maybe recap that? So this is a good, this is a good opportunity to talk about why we started the weekly speak in the first place, because my thought has always been it's not the fact that bias is necessarily bad, um, and we've talked about this several times on the podcast. We talked about something similar to this last week in in that expertise is really being able to understand various sets of data. And when you do that, you're going to be biased. There's no other way to put it. Bias usually has a negative connotation, but not all bias is bad. Right. Uh, what we have with the New York Times is the perfect case of what is wrong with the mainstream news media. Now, in what I want to stay away from on the on one side is that we cannot know anything. That's a ditch I think we we shouldn't go into, is that the news doesn't matter. We really can't know what's going on, so we should just quit. And then on the other side, I think the ditch that we're likely to fall into is to become a full-fledged conspiracy theorist and think that the, the news is actually misleading us on everything. The problem, in my opinion, is actually worse than both of those because both of those still have an element of normalcy embedded in them. The problem is right. you cannot tell when something is factually accurate, when somebody is being true about their bias, and when somebody is not. That's that's maybe the most difficult thing about what we see going on with the news. And so this week, the way that this happened is two New York Times writers, uh, Robin Pogrebin and Kate Kelly, have just released or are about to release a book called The Education of Brett Kavanaugh. And so the Times, in one of their weekend offerings, put out an advanced version of some of the chapters of this book, or at least some of the uh, sections that everybody wants to hear. And what happened was they edited the information from the book. People that had gotten advanced copies of the book 
uh, one of whom being Molly Hemingway, who also just wrote a book on this topic called Justice on Trial, started to point out that the information in the columns and the information in the book were not the same. So because of the pressure, the New York Times then needs to make a correction. They make a correction in the footnotes, and even the correction is misleading. So this all, and and, and we don't need to get into all the details here. Uh, You could dive down this rabbit hole if you want to. Uh, But basically, the New York Times knew that one of the allegations came from a witness who not only was was not vetted properly, but had actually come out and denied the thing that they said that this person had alleged. So they were reporting something. They were not reporting something that had been documented that was detrimental for the case that they were making. And to the point that we made last week, this is where I always come down on the news. If you're overt about where you're coming from, and and that doesn't even mean you need to put a sentence at the beginning of your article. It's just if you are construing the data in such a way uh, that has a consistent narrative, you have priorities, you see the world a certain way, that's fine. That's what I would consider to be opinion writing. I I I don't really think that we have journalism anymore. From, a, from the sense that you can just take whatever claims to be journalism and expect it to be objective. Uh, objectivity is a little bit of a sham, uh, but especially in a culture that has so many different worldviews, you're not going to get something that is, that is objective. Um, we do have places that report the facts pretty well. But if you're doing that and you're writing an opinion and you're construing the facts in a certain way, I have no problem with that. The most dangerous thing is when you know about something you choose to not include that fact in your reporting because it violates what you think is true, that's dangerous. That's the thing that I think um, um, people need to be recognizing. That's the kind of thing that I think uh, should... I, I think places like the New York Times for doing that should be punished in some way. Now, the interesting thing is... The only way to punish somebody like that is to stop contributing to what they're doing. And that's just not something that's happening right now. Uh, Although their readership is going down, but every newspaper's readership is going down. But uh, yeah, it's it's not dangerous to report things and construe them in a way that maybe I disagree with, because who knows if I'm right or wrong. The dangerous thing is when you leave out things that you know to be true because it doesn't fit with the narrative that you want people to believe. When you call that journalism or when you report that in a mainstream media outlet, that I think is pretty despicable. Yeah, I think there was the New York Times was pretty widely criticized for the handling of this. It, it, if nothing else, it fell below their intended journalistic standards. Let me just leave it there. Well, let me take this a different direction and say, given that that is our environment, that is one of the reasons that the Weekly Speak came about. That's one of the reasons SoWeSpeak.com, the media company, has come about. And first, let me focus in on that weekly digest of the news, the Weekly Speak. What actually is the Weekly Speak? So the reason I started writing the Weekly Speak was because I actually wanted to know what was going on in the world. I think from a Christian standpoint, it's not, it it does not fulfill our duty to society, to the people around us, to our neighbors, to our communities to not know what's going on. 
I think as Christians, we need to be able to speak into the life of the cities that we live in. We need to be able to fight for biblical justice. We need to be able to engage on the things that people are thinking and talking about. And in order to do that, you need to know what's going on. Um, and so I think there's a whole camp of Christians who have seeded that area of the public, public square, not because they are uh, incapable of engaging there, but because they are unwilling to dialogue about what's actually happening. And part of that comes from not feeling like you really know what's going on in the news. So um, the, other, the other thing that contributes to that is age. So I don't watch the news. In fact, I don't know anybody who watches the news that that isn't uh, significantly older than I am. Uh, not a shot across your bow, but uh, people my parents' age um, watch the news. I don't. I don't watch the news. In fact, what I feel like most people who are my age are doing is getting most of their news from Twitter, from Facebook, from wherever. And the problem with that is, say what you will about the news, uh, I think there's a lot of problems with with cable news, uh, but at least there is some sort of forethought that goes into how these stories are going to be presented. So whether or not you like Fox News or whether or not you like ABC, NBC, CNN, whatever, they have an agenda. They are crafting things beforehand. There is a certain level of professionalism that we could probably argue about, but there's some forethought. Twitter removes the, the, the filter of any forethought going into news. So there, there's actually no verification method embedded in, in Twitter and the reality of how you read things on Twitter that can tell you whether or not something is true or not. So if you just scroll down your timeline on Facebook and you see the stories that somebody posts, that doesn't mean anything about what's actually happening. So right. anyway, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, okay, we need to be informed. We need to be able to talk about what's going on. I think as Christians, we bring things that are really unique to our society, not just to other believers, but to society as a whole. Uh, we have a really hard time knowing what's going on. And it's getting worse in the sense that the traditional barriers of accountability don't exist in the places where most people get their news. So that led me to think, well, what I want to do is I want to pick a few of the most important things that are going on, and I want to figure out what's actually happening, and I want to start to formulate a response uh, from a Christian worldview. So from the bias standpoint, the weekly speak is completely biased uh, in the sense that I'm coming from a biblical, orthodox, evangelical point of view, broadly speaking, uh, and I'm writing about things that I think matter the most that are going on in the news for Christians. And so each week, that's what I'm trying to do is give anywhere from sometimes as, as few as two, if there are some really big things going on, to as many as six or seven news stories, issues that are going on. And I'm trying to present them with the best of what's been written on those, the best reporting, the best opinions, the best takes, uh, many of which I don't agree with, but I think are the best, clearest, most thought out representative opinions uh, all in one place. And then I tag on some interesting articles at the end, which are completely and totally subjective. Uh, It's just whatever I think is worth reading that week and then begin to send it out. And so more and more people are signing up for it. More and more people are reading it because I think that really is a need uh, in terms of our ability to interact culturally with what's going on. Well, one of the things I really like about it is the fact that you bring in 
the best reporting, the clearest reporting on topics, and it's easy for me to get more than one side. Uh, you link to a lot of articles from very reputable sources. Again, they have their biases, but it helps me to understand how people who think differently than I think, intelligent people who think differently than I think, which I can't, you can't guarantee that on social media. But it would be useful, I think, to know what are some of the sources. I know you read widely and you've quoted and uh, referred widely in the weekly speak, but what are some of your go-to sources for the weekly speak? So this is a tough question because on the social media front and from a mainstream media perspective, it's it's easy. In fact, I think the system is designed to keep you within the bubble of sources that you want to be in. And those yeah. work differently. So from a mainstream media outlet standpoint, the most prohibitive thing is cost. Getting access to newspapers is really expensive. Um, the New York Times is better than most in the sense that you can get a good New York Times subscription with digital access for about $10 a month if you get the right intro deal and student deal and all that. I mean, right. if you work your way through that, you can pay that. But even that, I feel like, is is pretty expensive just to read the news. Um, the Wall Street Journal is more than that. The Washington Post is at least that much. Um, and when you get to the next level of things, if you want like the Financial Times or if you want something, I mean, you could end up paying hundreds of dollars every month just to get access to the news. And I think that in and of itself is kind of a travesty in, in society. There's, there's not a state-sponsored free news outlet that I feel like gives you uh, the kind of reporting and journalism and writing that you would want to read. Well, let me interject here with a, a shameless thank you to our supporters, because you're right. It is expensive to be, and this is something most people can't afford to do, either in time or money, is to access all these publications. But those of you that have made your tax-deductible contribution to SoWeSpeak.com, this is one of the things that we do with some of that money, is to make sure we have access to the best news sources out there. So what would be some of the sources that you uh, rely on? So I'll, I'll just walk through the process here of, of what I do on a weekly basis. So what I try to do is I try to read, uh, I try to read through the front page of, or the links on the front page of a newspaper each day. Um, so that's something I'm predisposed to do. I like it. I'm a fast reader. I enjoy reading it. Um, I don't think that by any means that's what you need to do to stay informed. Um, that's a service I'm like, willing to do for the people that read it. But the news cycle turns over so fast that if you just take a break from Sunday to Thursday, there's a lot of stuff you miss. And I think you could make the argument that that stuff is not that important. Um, stuff that doesn't, right. stuff that doesn't last more than 24 or 36 hours in the news cycle probably isn't that important. But if your goal is to understand what's happening, what's shaping things, what people are talking about, uh, what kinds of cultural tides are moving, I try to stay up on on what's going on. So I'll read a, a, a paper every day. And as I'm doing that, I will be making notes on things that seem like they're gaining momentum, heading a certain direction, things that things are blowing up a little bit. And what I like to do after that is once I identify what I think are some of the most important stories, I like to go and read the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the New York Times, 
in either the Financial Times or BBC or Atlantic or, or a couple of other outside sources to see how the coverage is different in different places. And so you can see pretty quickly, uh, again, back to the, the article this week from the New York Times, if you just read the way that the that uh, like the Wall Street Journal reacted to that, as opposed to the way that Vox reacted to that, as opposed to the way that uh, maybe a disinterested party like uh, a British newspaper reacted to that, it will tell you a lot not only about the situation, it'll tell you a lot about the publication itself. So as I'm doing that, I'm trying to find what I think are the best set of facts. I'm trying to find what I think are the best opinions. So I spend some time trying to figure out who's making an argument about this. So if, as long as right. we can establish what's actually happening, I want to read somebody that makes an argument that tells us what we should think about this. And then I want to evaluate that. And I try to include a couple of different perspectives on that. That's where you get into some really helpful stuff like the... American Enterprise Institute, the whole think tank group of people. Right. Uh, Brookings Institute is is helpful. Um, Hoover Institution has some good stuff. Anyway, once you get into these think tanks and uh, policy groups, you're going to get exactly what those people tell you you're going to get from them. And when they write things on foreign policy, for example, they're from a pretty specific standpoint. And they usually have great people writing for them. But that's going to tease out what what to think about this topic. Um, the last thing I would say is I do pay attention to the other Christian publications who are writing about this. So um, the Drudge Report is, is one that most people are familiar with. It's not Christian, but there's a Christian version of the Drudge Report called the Christian Daily Reporter. And yeah. uh, he is going to give you some conspiracy-ish type stuff. You have to wade through the things that he's putting together, but he will also tag articles and link to articles that you're not going to see anywhere else, which is really helpful. Of course, Chally's.com isn't news focused and neither is the Gospel Coalition, but they have good commentary a lot of times on what's going on. For the Church is a great spot to get some cultural things, but not not a ton. Um, obviously, Al Mohler's The Briefing is, real, is a really important source um, to look at for what's going on. Every now and then I'll, I'll check what's going on on Patheos. That kind of depends on the person who's writing, but they have some authors over there who are, who are going to be commenting on things like this. Um, anyway, so then it's just a matter of checking around. That's where the Twitter feed becomes really useful. If you can keep it diverse enough is the things that people are linking, tell you how big groups of people are trying to think about this. And what's interesting about Twitter is, there are accounts that are news focused. There are people, correspondents, um, and and just people who have access to certain information who are giving you news. But more often than not, what Twitter is doing is it is circulating and building platforms for opinions about certain news stories. So Twitter is usually good to tell you what certain groups of people think about certain news stories. Not always the best place to figure out what's actually happening in a news story. Right. Well, that that's really thorough, and that's one of the things I like about the Weekly Speak is it saves me so much time that you have sifted through this, and I can still get a diverse point of view. One thing I would ask you that might be helpful to our listeners as they engage with various, whether it's social media or blog sites like Vox and uh, Patheos, etc., or publications. 
What are some of the uh, biases, again, not a bad thing, just knowing where they're coming from? How would you handicap uh, the following ones? Let me just shoot them at you, and you give me uh, your take, having read quite a bit from these, is where do they stand? What's their basic bias? We'll start with uh, a simple one, the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal is, in my opinion, probably the best place to go and find a middle-of-the-road um, coverage of what's happening. It is not as accessible as media outlets that lean to the left. That's probably my big beef with the Wall Street Journal is they're not encountering uh, young people and in, in, in impacting conversations in the way that they could because they have not invested to make their technology accessible enough. So on the one hand, they don't have as many free articles. You get cut off on almost every article if you don't have a subscription as, say, the New York Times or the Washington Post. And then secondly, their app is not as friendly. So it's harder to find the stuff that is breaking news. It's harder to navigate. Um, now, it's, 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 not, uh, it's not terrible. It's not Stone Age. But it's more difficult than the other companies to find stuff. But I would say they have less well-known opinion writers than any of the other major publications. Uh, they're just not as famous in in popular circles, especially among younger people. But their reporting, their actual journalism, is more widely circulated. They have a ton of subscribers. They really are moving the conversation in the middle. And, and some people think they lean right. If they do, it's in their opinion writing and, and that kind of thing. Most people think of them as a financial paper, but I think they're probably moving the conversation the most when it comes to trusted reporting, objective reporting. I think they're probably your best bet. What about uh, New York Times, Washington Post? Both of those are unapologetically liberal. I would say the Washington Post is more liberal than the New York Times, but it kind of depends on who's writing. So you can get some opinion columnists at the New York Times that are as liberal as anybody in the country. I will say I, I, I think it's good that they have some conservative, regular writers on their side. I think Ross Douthat is great. Brett Stevens does a good job. Uh, I read most of what those guys write. It's usually pretty good. They're they're a little. Those are New York Times opinion. They're writers. token conservatives in some ways, but they do bring some balance to the op-ed columns at the New York Times. I will say this: the New York Times is the establishment paper, socially speaking, culturally speaking, in America. It is the premier paper in America. It is implicitly the most trusted, but they are taking hits monthly right now at their credibility. Part of that is their editorial staff is cannot control their their uh, propensity to lead people to the left. Uh, and then secondly, they continue to make errors in their reporting. So while the New York Times is inescapable, they do break stories that nobody else has access to. They do projects that I think are really important. I think I've written several times about this 1619 project that they're doing. I think that's really important. I think that it is fundamentally skewed in the narrative that they're using, but I think it's really important. And I think people look to it as a culture setting institution. The Washington Post to me is really interesting because on the one hand, they have some of the most wacky stuff that they will publish in their op-ed things. I mean, their, their control on what can and cannot be on their site is 
far wider than the Wall Street Journal, yeah. the New York Times. But uh, you know, they they'll have conservatives write in, and they'll get absolutely roasted on the on the site. But they have some good stuff in there. Hugh Hewitt writes for them, which is really surprising yeah. given conservative as you yeah, yeah given very conservative as conservative as he is, they allow him to write for them. They get some really interesting celebrities to write for them pro, from from a from a. Um, like true celebrity standpoint, but also in the news, former government officials are writing for them. So they they are a power player. I I would never go to them to just get the objective facts of anything, but they are going to give you the biggest spectrum of opinion writers, and they're going to unashamedly unashamedly from from a op ed standpoint lean to the left, even more so than the New York Times. But they also have more conservative people write from time to time than the New York right. Times would allow. So much broader. Uh, one Another source that you uh, cite from quite a bit, uh, well, a couple. First, how about National Review? National Review is great. They are ultra-conservative. The interesting thing with them is they have, among conservatives, they have a wide spectrum of that standpoint. They have never-Trumpers committed never-Trumpers who write for the site. They have uh, pragmatic pro-Trump people. They have ideologically pro-Trump people on the site. Mm-hmm. I, I think if you do one thing from National Review, I would listen to the podcast called The Editors. And it is The Editors of the National mm-hmm. Review. Mm-hmm. And they, they have a good podcast. They offer great commentary. David French is on there a lot. Uh uh, Charlie Cook is on there. Rich Lowry is on there sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a they have a good group on on there. Uh, one of their notable guys' name is uh, Andrew McCarthy. He's a yeah. really interesting guy. He is really conservative, uh, but but has some interesting things to say. I think uh, David French is a really good writer, and yeah. uh, he is a he's been a never Trumper guy. And has gotten a lot of heat. We're gonna do. I think we're gonna do a podcast episode on that in the future. But uh, they've got some really great stuff over at National Review. Uh, how about uh, before we leave the print world or digital print world, uh, Atlantic, New Yorker, any other things like that that you draw from sometimes? Uh, the Atlantic is interesting because they're about to change their whole model. They're changing their subscription service. But up until now, and I haven't researched enough to know how fundamentally they're going to change things, but up until now, they've been a great place to get free opinion, free thoughtful writing on almost everything that's going on. So you can go there. You have to know that they're going to host a, a wide variety, mostly leaning left, but not 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 super far left on their site. They're going to have a diversity of different things from pop culture to what's going on in the news to what's going on in the White House to anything and everything in between. Uh, but they're, they're pretty good. I liked uh, several writers that write for them. I think Emma Green, while I don't think she is as conservative and evangelical as maybe some conservative evangelicals would like, uh, is a really smart, professional, uh, she's clear thinking. She's done a lot of good journalism, but she also has some good opinions. Uh, but they have a lot of great people over there at the Atlantic. Uh, the New Yorker to me is funny because it is such a cultural staple. It is the most highbrow, uh, news, if you would call it that outlet in the country. I think every uh-huh. few weeks there's a story well worth reading in the New Yorker. 
But they absolutely lost it when Trump got elected. They, I mean, he was on the cover of that thing for what seemed like six months, and they were just they were just suspending all editorial credible practices just to flame Trump over and over and over again. And they looked silly in the process. I mean, they just looked unrestrained in in the process. Mm-hmm. But when they're not writing about Trump, there are some really interesting. Uh, stories in there. You know, they have Ronan Farrow write for them quite a bit who made an idiot yep. of himself in the Kavanaugh hearings yes. and, and reporting. But they have those kinds of big name people writing for them that yeah, award winning, well respected. It's important to know what's going on in the New Yorker to an extent, but I would limit that to say uh, a big story every few weeks, maybe. Let me change tacks for just a minute, and knowing we have a pretty diverse, in fact, we have a very diverse set of listeners to the podcast, I'm going to give you some terms and see if you can kind of uh, just basically give us the layman's definition of some of these things, because you're going to read about them in articles, you're going to see them in public discourse. The first one is, what does it mean when you hear the word intersectional? So I think all these terms are important because these are mechanisms that allow us to talk about the worldviews that are represented in these various news outlets. And the funny yes. thing is, so when we send out the weekly speak, it goes to about it goes to about 450 to 500 people each week. And almost every week I get a reply from at least somebody. And I really enjoy those. I look forward to getting feedback. Sometimes they're really kind and positive. Uh, but I would say at least once every three or four weeks, somebody is offended. And, and in some ways, I actually take pride in the fact that I've gotten people that think I am way, way, way too pro-Trump, uh, which I wouldn't consider myself a pro-Trump person. Uh, but right. And there are people who uh, absolutely think that we've gone off the liberal edge and aren't standing up for what's right and constitutional and patriotic. And... I don't think that's good for the sake of itself, uh, but I do think it's good in the sense that a faithful Christian witness to what's going on in the news is going to violate some of the norms of both political parties. We just don't live in a world where you can comfortably be all in on one party and everything that it stands for and everything that all of its leaders say and uh, never find yourself with some pushback. I just think it's, it's impossible to be that. In America today. And so one of the reasons is because of these underlying movements like you're talking about. So right. intersectionality, for example, comes from a worldview that there is a hierarchy of victimhood in our culture. And to explain some of this, I think I'll link to the blog series we did on the coddling of the American mind. So we did seven or eight posts on this that deal with this worldview. And the worldview essentially says that you have experiences that shape the way that you think about things. Um, And some of it is implicit and some of it is known, but it, it builds up a worldview for you. So you can be intersectional in several different ways. If you are a member of any minority group, those minority identities actually stack on top of each other. That's where the intersectional part of it comes from is you aren't just, most people don't find themselves as just one minority. You actually have four or five different unique perspectives 
as a person in these minority groups, and that causes you to see the world a certain way. Now, what I want to say about intersectionality is one of the fundamental premises is true, and, and that is that your experiences, especially experiences in a minority culture, do shape the way that you see the world. And as Christians, we need to say that those things are valuable. Um, we don't believe that Christianity is just for uh, you know white, heterosexual, middle-class men who, who are the enemy of, of the intersectional. Uh, we, we, we believe everybody's experiences matter. But the other premise that I would say that we need to reject is that building up certain levels or layers of intersectionality actually is a virtue and nobody else can speak into a situation who doesn't have that same set of layers of intersectionality. I mean, pushed to absurdity, we're getting to the point where you can't actually say anything about anybody else because you don't have the exact same experiences that they do. And now here's where we get to the point where Christians just have to part ways with this. Biblically speaking, and I think a lot of our culture, our cultural dialogue comes down to this. Do you or do you not believe that a member of one group can say something insightful and wise and biblical and authoritative about another group and have authority over them? If you don't believe that, whether it's because of intersectionality, whether it's because of power dynamics, whatever, then you're going to have a very hard time reading what the Bible says about the church on the one hand, about Believers, on the other hand, about what God requires right. of us, on the other hand, the Bible is willing to make sweeping statements about humanity that are true regardless of your background. So the Bible doesn't right. actually have any category for your experience determining whether or not you need to obey God and follow Jesus Christ. Um, in the same way, the Bible is pretty clear that there are members of the church, however we construe that, who are going to be responsible. They're going to be authoritative over others, make decisions for other people in that church. And um, if you fundamentally don't believe that somebody from whatever different version of the group that you're identifying can say something authoritative about your life, you're going to have a very hard time with biblical Christianity. So that's where I say intersectionality is important in the sense that it exposes us to the fact that people have different perspectives informed by their different experiences, ethnicities, backgrounds, groups that they find themselves in. But we need to reject the fact that that is all determinative for the worldview and um, the authority structures that we find ourselves in. And truth. I mean, in one sense, uh, something that's on an elementary level is the idea of intersectionality is that the group to which you belong or the groups, the various minority groups, determine your identity, which obviously goes uh, 180 degrees from the gospel, which says, no, God created you with a unique identity. Mm -hmm. And God is restoring that unique identity that we find our identity in Christ and not in some particular ethnic uh, ideological, sociological, racial, you know, in any other particular grouping. And I, I think you make a good point, but that's what intersectionality means, and it brings with it a particular worldview. Here's another term that you hear a lot, uh, is uh, at least in certain circles, what does it mean to be woke? This, this is a harder term to define than intersectionality because, at least with intersectionality, most of the people that are talking about it mean the same thing. The problem with the term woke is, and this is really an interesting little phenomenon we have going here, because 
under the auspices of intersectionality and certain understandings of what it means to be woke, you and I should not even be defining the term woke uh, because we are not part of that group. But see, this is where it's really important to understand what is meant. There are a lot of evangelical Christians who are using this term in a way that does not reflect the way it's used in broader culture. It's a Venn diagram, like there's overlap, um, but it's not used the same way. So I would say, for example, Eric Mason, who's a pastor in Philadelphia, a reformed evangelical guy, really solid, has a book called Woke Church. And what he means by that versus what is meant by Black Lives Matter, the New York Times, the 1619 movement even, is not the same. At its core, what it means is waking up to the realities of oppression, race relations in our country, privilege, and the way that you fit into that matrix. But outside of that, so it's hard to say anything about it in the sense of, I think the way that it's used in terms of privilege in secular circles and the way that maybe somebody like Eric Mason is using it in evangelical circles is really different. If you have a biblical-based vision for race reconciliation in the kingdom of God and you call that being woke— then I think we would be for that. I think we would be for people waking up to the idea that God actually is building a kingdom of from every tribe, every tongue, every race, every nation, and that they're going to be united under Christ, and that work starts now. I'm for that. I'm 100% for that. If by woke you mean we need to wake up to a reality where if your people group that you've taken on that identity has committed historic evils against another people group, you need to make everlasting reparations against that group. You need to forfeit the ability to speak anything about that group. You need to remove yourself uh, and and uh, undergo cognitive uh, bias or uh, unconscious bias training, implicit bias training and uh, worldview therapy, then I think we reject that. And again, I I think there's probably some of our listeners that will disagree with that. Read our read our series on that. That's what the coddling of the American mind is about: is how is your identity actually defined? And the interesting thing is, those guys are not Christians. What they're coming from is a therapeutic understanding of these concepts, where you say, "Hey, the way that we're actually behaving and coping and reacting to these perceived microaggressions, harm, wounds, trauma, etc., is more consistent with the symptoms of things like." Hyper, hyper anxiety, chronic anxiety, PTSD, than yep. it is healthy coping mechanisms to things that happen to you. And that's the point I would try to make is if, you're, if your understanding of what it means to be woke falls into that category, then we ha- actually have a fundamentally different anthropology, biblically speaking. But if your definition of woke means uh, that we need to wake up to the historical realities of race relations and, and understand that God is building a kingdom uh, of everybody, regardless of ethnicity, then I think by that we mean that it's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. One last term. This is one we hear a lot. What is an echo chamber? See, echo chamber. An echo chamber basically means that you hear people that agree with you all the time, and yeah. uh, this is where it's interesting. Social media is set up to be an echo chamber. The algorithms of your Twitter feed are going to reinforce the people that you have already told it that you identify with. So I try to follow on Twitter. This is, this is really maddening, but I try to follow people from 
a lot of different corners of the universe so that I'll continue to be exposed to people who I don't know about that I don't agree with. One of the most difficult things in our society, especially if you're liberal, I think I will say, is to come across people you don't agree with who you don't know about. Very difficult for that to happen on social media. Now, it's easier if you're a conservative, it's easy to find out people that you don't agree with because they are going to be trending more than conservatives. Um, So if, if, if you are really, really conservative, you are going to encounter AOC or whoever else because that's what's that's what's going on on Twitter. Those people are masters at using social media to advance their perspective and their point. Now, if you're a liberal, you're going to be confronted with Trump all the time because he also is a master of marshalling (laughs) social medias. But to get thoughtful, conservative viewpoints will be more difficult if you only follow liberal people and vice versa. So I try to follow both, even though, like I said, it can be really frustrating when you're on your feed, um, and you're, and you're seeing all of that. Echo chambers, on the one hand, are good in, in the sense that um, everybody has a longing to be surrounded by people that they feel comfortable with and that they trust. Echo chambers can be a bad thing when we get further and further and further down into niche areas and we don't actually see any kind of opposition or any thoughtful engagement with our views to where we sort through what it is that we believe and and what it is that we think. So echo chamber is one of those weaponized terms that you use it. It has a negative connotation for good reason. Uh, But if it were up to any of the people using the term echo chamber, they would create an echo chamber for everyone given what it (laughs) is that they believe. So you have to be a little bit of where they're coming. Yeah. You have to be a little bit careful using that term. Certainly what we're trying to do is not create an echo chamber. Uh, So with the weekly speak, I want people to understand that there are thoughtful opinions on almost every side of these issues. And I want us to be conversant with those opinions. I want us to be able to get to the worldview level. I want us to be able to uncover assumptions. And at the same time, I want people to know that if you're a Christian and you're thoughtful and you want to engage topics, there are people that will do that with you. And there are people out there who are respectable and well-educated, thoughtful people who are going to advance those same positions. And uh, it's okay to bring a Christian worldview into the public square. We've seeded a large portion of the public square because we are either ill-equipped or ashamed of what it means to be a biblical Christian. Some people, I think, are confused. Other people have given up. Other people are ashamed. And one of the things that, that, that So We Speak exists for is to bring Christian conviction back into the public square, doing our due diligence, and marshalling really, really thoughtful and engaging opinions to try and change culture. That's, why, that's what we exist to do. Um, we also exist to transform Christian worldview, to talk about the Bible, all of that. But the, the public policy arm of what we're doing is to recapture that space in the public square that I think has gone away. Well, Cole, on behalf of all those who read the Weekly Speak and then all the many more uh, who continue to sign up, literally every week people sign up because others forward it to them. Thanks for your hard work on this because, again, I'll simply say, of all the things I read, 
this is the best use of time every Monday morning is to get this kind of view of what's going on in the world, access to resources in a fraction of the time that you spend. So thanks and keep up the good work. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.